Blog Talk Radio. everybody and welcome to Golf Talk Live. I'm your host Ted Odorico. Got a great show for you this Thursday night, March the 2nd. Um, really super excited. This is going to be the first uh, Coach's Corner of the 2017 season. I've got a great panel uh, waiting here in the wings that I'm going to bring out here in just a second. And then a little bit later on in the uh, broadcast, we're going to be joined by John Decker. Uh, he is the author uh, of the book Golf is My Life, uh, Glorifying God Through the Game. And he's also a motivational speaker for uh, celebrate Sports Tour Foundation. So he'll be joining us in the second half of the program. Um, but in the meantime, as I said, we're going to start off with Coach's Corner. I've been really excited about that. And uh, as I said, I've got a great panel uh, coming on here. But let me just remind everybody, of course, we are live uh, every Thursday from 6 to 8 p.m. Central or 7 to 9 for those of you on the East Coast uh, here on the blogtalkradio.com network. And the best way to find me is go to blogtalkradio.com, up in the search key, type Golf Talk Live, and that will take you to the, uh, the appropriate page. And you can listen to the show live. And if for some reason you can't join us live, not to worry. Uh, just go to that link at uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash golf talk live and just scroll down to the on demand section. And you can listen to the recorded version a little bit later when it's convenient for you. So um, lots of great ways. Uh, also on social media, facebook.com forward slash golf talk live blog. Make sure you have blog on the end is the uh, Facebook page for the program and also my personal page as well. Uh, update uh, and many of the golf groups of course on facebook also on twitter you can follow me on twitter at ted and buck ceo ceo of course in capital letters uh you can also follow the show that way as well but appreciate you guys tuning in tonight and uh, as i said i'm very excited we're starting off with coach's corner uh as uh, we do every year and it's just been a very successful part of the program and a lot of great uh, uh lady and uh, gentlemen professionals uh, have joined in on on the mix over the last few years and uh, the first one I'm going to bring on is, of course, Allison Kurt. Uh, she's a PGA Master Professional in Instruction and an LPGA Class A member. She's also TPI certified and considered to be one of Golf Digest's best young instructors in America for both uh, 2016 and 2017. Uh, also, my good friend, Mr. Pete Buchanan. He's the founder and director of instruction and owner of the Plain Simple Golf LLC, uh, which houses the Plain Simple Golf Circuit and the Simple Swing Repeater Training Brace. Uh, and he, welcome him back as well. And also rounding out the panel is Monty Scheinbloom. He's been a guest before, but I don't think he's ever been on the panel. Uh, he's the son of a major league baseball player, uh, aspired uh, to follow in his father's footsteps uh, until a uh, major elbow injury and reconstruction at age 15 forced him to give up baseball for golf. Uh, he's had some very early success in the game, which led him to the US, UCLA, where he played for the Bruins before turning professional. He's also the 1992 World Long Drive Champion, and was runner-up uh, two more times as well. Uh, he became a full-time professional tournament player with the goal of eventually playing on the PGA Tour and uh, just made the finals of the Champion Tour Q School, but also 
uh, teaches all around at uh, many different uh, golf schools uh, around the country, and I think he's visited uh, over 15 cities, so he's uh, really moving around and helping to grow the game. So I'd like to welcome uh, Allison Kurt, Pete Buchanan, and Monty Scheinblum to the Coach's Corner panel here on Golf Talk Live. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Good to be here. Thanks, Chris. All right. Uh, I told you it was going to be quick, so I have to read through that, so I apologize. Uh, just to let the folks know, there's many, many other accolades that these uh, uh, guys have to their name, and, and we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, here's something I want to talk about tonight, and these are some of the points, uh, both for as instructors, uh, as we all are, but also as students, uh, points that we need to remember regarding uh, good golf lessons. And, Allison, I'm going to, as I mentioned off air, I'm going to start with you. And uh, I just want to read something out uh, a little bit first, and then I'm going to ask you, uh, uh, you know, a question, and we'll uh, circulate around through the panel. Uh, in all golf lessons, the golf teacher professional must set achievable goals, uh, make progress with the student, and leave the student with a sense of accomplishment. Uh, personable approach is important. Uh, find, our, about, uh, find out about your students, uh, what they want to learn, et cetera, and be a good listener. Um, the most successful golf teacher professionals are organized, service-oriented, and understand the concept of building clientele. Uh, it's, uh, teaching golf uh, well is an art and can be a very rewarding one, as we've all uh, experienced. Um, true statement, do you think, uh, Allison? Mostly. Mostly. Okay. I think there's some really, really good pieces in that. And okay. I, it is a service industry. We We work with human beings, and... Um, individuals are coming to us for our our skill. They're coming to us for our knowledge. They're coming to get help. And so if we're poor in communication and we're poor in building relationships, we're not going to have a business anymore. So I really do believe in that, that service element. I, I believe that teaching is an art. There's no exact way to do it. All three of us right. professionals on the, on the panel might approach a student from three different ways, but they're all going to walk away better. They're just going to get mm-hmm. three different uh, types of, of delivery um, to them. But the part that I disagree with is the very first component of that statement, and that's that the professional or instructor sets the goals for the student. And okay. the reason why I disagree with that is because in the student-centered approach, I mean, the student is the expert in this relationship mm-hmm. when it comes to them. They know themselves better than we do. Uh, they know what they're feeling. They know what they're capable of. We may help encourage them. We may see a different sort of perspective when it comes to potential. But I really think that the student needs to come up with goals. And then in a collaborative relationship, right. the teacher can help guide, modify, reframe so that they're, they're realistic but also challenging. So I don't think it's um, quite so um, solely on the instructor. I think it should be a cooperative relationship. Yeah, I'll, let me just interject real quick. I, I agree with you. I, I think you're exactly right. I think the students uh, need to have some goals in mind. I think really what um, what that statement is is trying to say, and I and I, I agree with it to a certain point as well, is I, I think that sometimes the students will come with a, a goal in mind that's just not necessarily achievable or realistic early on, especially for beginners. Now, obviously, more seasoned players and things like that. Um, there, that may be a, a different issue. But I think sometimes, especially for the beginning golfers, I think is what the message is trying to get at is um, more along the lines of what you uh, just said, uh, Allison, and that is it sort of has to be a collaborative uh, uh, experience and not just one side or the other. The coach can't just sort of impose their will on the student um, and say, well, this is what we're going to do or how we're going to do it. 
um, and here's what we're going to get the results. So I understand and I agree with you 100 yeah. uh, percent. I think it has to be collaborative, but I think also uh, I think that sometimes the, the coach or teacher professional has to sometimes keep the student a little bit grounded, I guess, is the word I'm looking at, because there, there are a lot of times and I think we've all experienced this. Pete, I'm going to go to you next. Um, your thoughts on, on that overall statement, if I need to read any part of it again, I can. Um, but that particular first part, do you agree with that uh, statement in, in general, or do you lean more towards uh, what Allison was just um, mentioning? Well, I, I agree with what she said, especially in the beginning. The, the first thing I always try to do is, is to find out as you know, what the goals are, what are they trying to achieve, and what do they want to achieve. And, and a lot of times I'll ask them, if you could go forward 12 months and you did everything you wanted to do, as you look back, what happened? So what did you see? And through that progress, how much did you practice? How much did you play? And so I'm trying to get them to, to look forward to see what it's going to take to be able to get to the goals that they want to achieve. But the other thing uh, on that, too, and it, it goes back with the lesson overall itself, mm-hmm. and, I, and I had a great conversation with, with another fellow professional today on this very thing, and it's you have to work with the students, not against them. And right. Times that, you know, there are certain things that they're doing, and if, if you make a change that makes them uncomfortable, they're going to work against you. So you have to understand not only the student themselves, but you also have to understand in the lesson which way you're going to go so that it best suits what they need and also keeps them comfortable and also makes it a, a great working environment. So, you know, I've, I've seen somewhere, you know, you might have had a better chance in the ring with Tyson than what you tried to do there um, <laughs> because they're, it's totally uncomfortable and the student didn't like it, and they were panicking. And once they start to panic, you've lost them. They're just not going to listen to you. They'll hear you, but they won't listen to you. So I think you have right. to create an environment that allows you to work with them, work toward correct instead of fighting incorrects all the time. Right. I, I agree. Um, Monty, what about your thoughts? Would maybe a better way to phrase this uh, is the, the teach professional or coach um, should help set some achievable goals, um, more leaning again to what um, uh, Allison and Pete have just sort of reiterated, and also to um, an art that I think sometimes is lost in humanity altogether, not just in teaching professionals, is being a good listener. I think sometimes we uh, don't always listen to our students maybe as well as we should, and, and certainly not in every case, but at time, from time to time I think it happens to even the best of us. Um, do you agree a little bit more with that uh, adjustment to the statement? You know, I think it's it's always got to be a really individual approach. Um, mm-hmm. Just to give an example that just happened to me just a few weeks ago, uh, a guy literally came to my lesson tee, and I asked him first thing, you know, how you doing, you know, whatever, uh, pleasantries. And I said, okay, what, what do you want to accomplish? What are your goals? Almost identical to this discussion. And mm-hmm. he very, very sincerely and succinctly said, I want to swing like Adam Scott. Right. And I was, was a bit taken aback, and I had to kind of, you know, you know scramble for, for an answer to that. And, you know, 15 minutes later, you know, he hadn't even hit a ball yet, and we kind of, you know, reeled him in a little bit, so to speak. And, mm-hmm. you know, going back to what was said before, it's a collaborative effort. Sometimes right. you have to say, wait, wait, wait a second, you know, maybe that's – and then the flip side has happened – You know, I've had people come to me that, you know, they are very down on themselves and they're much better golfers than they know. And it's just they've been kind of 
mentally been beaten down for a year or so of some bad golf and don't understand their full potential. So you can see there's, there's two extremes there that, that I just described. And it's really a case by case basis on how you have to handle, you know, each individual. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and Allison, I agree hundred percent with what you said. I think that um, it, it shouldn't necessarily be, I think that the, the instructor needs to be a guide if you will, for, for, especially for those early uh, beginning students that really don't understand golf very much. And this goes into my next question. Um, uh, Pete, I'm going to go to you first this time, and that is to be brief, uh, keeping the information simple and, and direct, as, which I know is going to be right in your wheelhouse, uh, <laughs> direct as possible, and really using words uh, that the students can understand. And, and the reason why I meant that is obviously a lot of people, you know, through social media and the Golf Channel and, and other avenues, uh, you know, hear all of this golf lingo that floats around, but really a lot of them don't understand what some of the terminology necessarily means. So is it important that we keep it as simple as possible as we can to help educate the students uh, or, or uh, players that we're working with to, to make their experience a little bit more filling as opposed to just hitting with a bunch of technical jargon that is going to have their head spinning for the next week? Your thoughts on that, Pete? Well, you, you, you picked the right guy for that question, um, considering it's plain, simple <laughs> golf. Um, no, I always try to keep it simple. And, you know, I found over the years, the, the longer that I've taught, the less I say. And so I'm very keen on, on not saying a whole lot and listening quite a bit and allowing them to actually do the things I'm asking them to do. Because I found if we talk too much or, or use too many terms, they don't understand, they'll just let us do all the thinking for them and they're not going to learn anything. So I always try to keep it very brief, very much to the point, and, and I have a process that I go through, but I, I don't say a whole lot. Um, you know, even with tournament players, I, I, I don't say a whole lot, and I just try to keep it very, very simple and to the point and only, only relative to the things that we need to work on at that time. And then I always like to, at the end, you know, if they have any questions, uh, I'll let them go. If they have anything they don't understand, things they might have heard that, you know, you've been listening to somebody say something you're not quite understand what it is. And I'll be happy to answer those, but while we're working, I try to keep it as simple as possible. Yeah, and I think one of the, the issues that uh, a lot of folks fall into in that area is they don't want to appear stupid. Um, and, and this is something, too, that I think the uh, teacher professional really has to be cognizant of uh, when they're explaining some of the, the uh, information is that, again, if we're going over the student's head, and they're not understanding it, we have to be cognizant of that because often what will happen is the student, again, not wanting to look foolish or, or as though they don't understand, won't necessarily come back and say, well, I'm not sure what you mean by that. Um, they can be a little bit apprehensive. So that's something that we have to be mindful of as well. Um, Monty, I want to ask you something a little bit different on, on this one. I'm going to try so that we're not getting too repetitive here, guys. Um, show rather than tell uh, at every opportunity during a golf lesson. Uh, some people believe that it's better that the uh, teaching professional or coach gets in there and, and physically shows them. Um, others say that, no, they you know, should stand back more and let the student do more of the hitting and, and, uh, and so forth. What are you, what's your thoughts on that? It, this has been my experience is, you know, I, I, I have the same repetitive thing over and over again. It's, it's very individual to the person, but I, I would rather them do it. But there's, there's kind of a, a phenomenon that if you can demonstrate the wrong way that they're doing it and produce 
the poor shot that they produce with the quote-unquote wrong way. And then you can show them, see if you make this little change, and then you produce a good shot, that will instill confidence in them that, yes, he understands why I'm hitting a bad shot. And look, he just made this one small change to what I do, and he hit a good shot. So it kind of gives them uh, you know, an idea that, okay, this person does know what they're talking about, and they see firsthand what that small change can, can produce. So, you know, again, you know, some people don't always need that, but a lot of people gain confidence in what they're hearing if they see it demonstrated properly. Right. Um, Allison, I wanted to get your thought on this because I know that um, just from the, the earlier discussion, I know that sometimes um, having the students not see necessarily a negative, and, and I'm going to have another question I'm going to ask you in a minute, but um, sort of reinforcing a negative um, is not always the best route. What's your thought on what Monty just said? Do you agree with that approach? Um, and I know we're all different, but what, what are your thoughts on that approach? I think Monty, Monty's approach is uh, definitely going to be effective when the student can see what their motion is doing to the golf ball. Um, I would argue that that's going to work really well for one type of student, a visual learner. Right. We've got three types yep. of learners. We've got visual learners, kinesthetic learners, and auditory learners. And so if you're using a learning style in, in terms of how you're delivering your message and that doesn't match with your student, you're going to miss the mark. So if someone's a visual teacher and I just keep verbalizing what I want them to do, we're going to be on different wavelengths and they're really not going to learn as effectively. Now, there are people that have, you know, all three different types of learning styles, and they're pretty strong in all of them. That's a great student. It's an easy student to work with. He's got multiple disciplines there. But you'll find that some students are really, really heavily dominated in one particular learning style. And so if you can discover that, let's say, through the interview process, then you can customize the lesson and your teaching style to meet their, their learning preference. And so I think Monty's version is fantastic for a visual learner. And then mm -hmm. even for a kinesthetic learner, if he can um, kind of manipulate the body in a way to have them feel what the incorrect motion is compared to the correct motion. And when they discover the correct motion on their own, then sort of supporting that discovery with what does it feel like and how are we going to remember that a couple of weeks from now. Right. Yeah, and, I'm it, sorry, and it goes I'm back. Sorry to, Go ahead, I'm Monty. sorry to interrupt, but I think that is what she just said is an excellent point. The, the first thing that I try to do when someone comes the first time is fit, figure out how the learning process works. I think that is an excellent, excellent point that she just made. Everybody learns differently. And if you don't figure out how that person learns, and you said, Ted, you said this earlier, if you don't mm -hmm. figure out how that person learns, you're not going to go anywhere with them, no matter how good the information is. That's a really, really good point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I think that this is where, uh, as golf professionals, I think um, beginning, especially with the newer students, and, and occasionally even revisiting this, but, but going through an assessment uh, process right from the get-go to, to uncover these uh, areas of, of learning, what the student uh, is best equipped for. Are they a visual learner, kinesthetic, uh, or auditory, as, as um, uh, Allison had just pointed out, is, is vital. And I think a lot of instructors – that aren't doing that do themselves a disservice, but also do the, the student a disservice because they're not really uh, engaging up front 
uh, and, and adapting their lesson plan to that particular student's um, uh, way of, of, of dealing with things. And I think quite often this is why we see frustration. Um, Allison, I want to, as I mentioned, I had another question, and, and this sort of, again, rolls into uh, in your wheelhouse, if you will. Um, we obviously all uh, have some fear of failure uh, in, in, our, in our wheelhouse, uh, some more than others, of course. Um, but by reinforce and paying too much attention to the mistakes can be detrimental to a, stu- a student's learning uh, abilities. So, um, and, and, and as somebody pointed out earlier, most people become very discouraged and less uh, receptive to learning if the lesson becomes a list of things they should not be doing. So um, how do we go about handling that? Obviously, we want to be able to praise the students uh, on their successes, but we also have to be realistic too, do we not, um, Allison, on, on and showing them some of the areas um, that they're not doing as well. How do we find that balance? It's a really great question, and I'm glad you, you asked me that because it's certainly in my wheelhouse. As a, mm. as a pra- practicing licensed psychotherapist, a lot of my training has been in behavioral reinforcement. So if you're working with um, any sort of behavior of an individual, what behaviors do you reinforce to get your elicited response and what behaviors do you want to ignore or a consequence, if you will, to diminish them. And so when we're working with players, I think we have to take in mind their self-esteem and their ego and their emotions, that every word that we say when we're either praising or providing feedback has to be carefully timed and carefully worded so that the, the student either doesn't take offense, but they're also getting the message clearly about what they need to do right. So I think when you provide feedback, it has to be very specific. And oftentimes in in coaching, I find that there is an emphasis on the pieces that an athlete is doing incorrectly. So, uh, okay, that move was more over the top. Nope, that wasn't the right move. We need to get it more here. And so it's more focusing on what not to do instead Mm of, hey, that was a better better move and progressing towards an end-out swing. We're getting really close. And so I think we need to emphasize and focus more on the good and what a student is doing. And research actually supports that statement that athletes will improve quicker for the longevity of their development if we focus more on praising and reinforcing correct motions. And when they make an incorrect motion, we don't need to comment about that. We can reframe our our verbiage to say we're moving closer, let's continue to make progress on this, you know, quote-unquote, end-out swing, whatever that might be. Right. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and actually, I have a gentleman that I've been working with here for a um, little over a month now that falls right into this wheelhouse uh, of, of thinking. And this is what I do as well as what you just pointed out. You know, obviously, uh, he has a lot of great things about his uh, his golf swing and his setup and so on and so forth. And I always make a point every every session that we get together of emphasizing and pointing those good uh, features out and those good qualities and when he does make a, um, uh, an error, you know, it's, it's minimized. But, you know, I do point it out, but not in, in a, you know, a big, long, uh, drawn-out thing. I will show him, but I'll then show him with a, you know, a modification to that, how he can get back in. But, again, reemphasizing it and, and sort of pumping up the, the good things about his swing or his setup or so forth, because I want him to come away with a positive image or a positive impression and not just talk about the negative things that, that may be going on there. Um, great point, uh, Allison. Thank you. Um, Pete, just something, or 
Um, no, sorry, Monty, I want to go to you next. I apologize. Uh, when working on a drill or exercise, this kind of falls into what we were just talking about as well. Uh, immediately related to the part of the swing that uh, it was intended for, is that uh, a good idea or what should we do when it comes to um, using specific drills or exercises? How do we tie those together for the students as well? I, I think the biggest mistake that, that's made with, you know, drills and training aids and, st and things like that is, is people will go to the range and overuse them and, you know, drill X and they'll go to the range and do drill X for a half an hour and then they can't hit a golf ball without it. Right. And that, that, to me, that's the biggest mistake that, that, that golfers make is, is, you know, whenever they're doing something, it, it, it's, it's directing at a better movement. You know, that's what a drill is for. You're trying to redirect a better movement. And the only way to get that to work is to go back and forth three with the drill, five regular four drill, mm -hmm. three regular and go back and forth. So there's a, there's kind of a transition process. Because if you just keep, you know, I saw a guy the other day, he had a training aid, and, and it's actually a fairly good one. It, it keeps you from bending the trail elbow past 90 degrees. And, and I watched him on the other side of the range hit balls for two straight hours with this thing on. And when he took it off, he, he couldn't get the ball in the air. And, and, right. and I think that's, that's, fair, that's fairly typical uh, um, among golfers, and, you know, we need to direct people away from that. Right. Um, now, Pete, I want to bring you in because you, you do uh, are a proponent of a, of a specific training aid um, that you have. Um, and do you agree with what Monty's assessment is or what's your take on that? Well, I do agree that you, you shouldn't be doing it too long. I mean, right. you know, once, once you start to do some, um, I, I call them sets and drills. I mean, once you start to do those, and I don't have very many of them in the process of of learning what's going on. But, you know, once you get to where you can, you can do those, you don't need to do 10,000 of them. I mean, that's just right. way too many. Uh, there, there's a certain limit on how many you should do, uh, but I think they are important um, in, in the building process for what you're trying to get to uh, uh, done properly. And as far as mm -hmm. training aids go, I mean, it's the same thing. If they're used properly, then they are a great advantage to getting what you need to get done. Now, mine was built specifically for what I'm after uh, in, in a certain part of the golf swing. And so it's used specifically for that. And it's, um, you know, I, I found it extremely beneficial. But again, as we were talking about, it's not overdone. It's done in the right uh, amount of time and in the right amount of practice to make it efficient. Yeah, I, I agree with that as well. Um Allison, I want to ask you this uh, this question, if I can. Um, obviously, uh, every golf lesson can be used as a learning experience for both teacher and uh, student. What should the student be looking for out of a golf lesson, and what should the, the teacher be looking for in a golf lesson? Ooh, I like that question, Ted. Well, the student oh, hey. should be <laughs> I the knew you would. Should be looking so. for, yeah, yeah. Their students should be looking for their goals being met. And so when a student comes to a lesson, I would hope that every instructor is having a, a dialogue with their student to figure out what they want. I mean, we don't go into a doctor's office and just have the doctor examine us. We tell them what the condition is, what we're looking for, what we have questions about. 
And so students come to us as, as swing experts and mental coach experts and, and golf experts, and they're coming with a conflict or an issue or something that they want to learn and improve. And so they should be able to walk away after that time if they're paying you for a service with their questions answered and have a better knowledge of their golf swing. And I think the golf instructor needs to ask themselves, did I do the best job possible to provide what my student needed? And so if the student's coming in with a request to improve their golf swing and they want to hit the golf ball longer and they walk away hitting it shorter, then the instructor needs to reevaluate their method. So I I think that the instructor needs to provide what the student is asking and the student should be walking away with what what they're requesting. Right. Well said. Um, Monty, what about your thoughts on, on that same question um, as far as a takeaway? What do you want your students to take away from, from the lessons that, you, that you're giving them, and what do you hope to take away um, once you're finished that particular um, lesson? It's funny. I'll answer the second part first. I, I often say this, that I learn more from my students than they learn from me, and that sounds like a a cop-out cliche to make me, you know, it's whatever, but the more lessons you give, the more you understand the learning process. And that's what I get. I get out of this. I get better at understanding how people learn information. So, you know, the toughest lessons are the ones that I learn the most from. And to answer the first part, I think people are a little bit, this is obviously a gross generalization, but people are a little bit too involved with making their golf swing perfect rather right. than rather than making it easier and the game more fun to play. And if, if somebody leaves one of my lessons and says, you know, this is a lot easier than I thought it would be, I know I've done my job. Well said. You're, you're exactly right. Um, Pete, I want to ask you a little bit different question. Um, I'm going to make a statement, and then uh, I want you to answer whether you agree with that statement uh, or not, and if, if yes or no, your reasons why. Um, if someone is, or in this case, obviously, if a student is not learning, then someone is not teaching golf. True statement. Uh, if so, why? If not, why? Well, I think it is a true statement because, you know, that's what they're there to do. They're there to learn, and you should be able to take that upon yourself to make to, to get them to learn something. I mean, that's what we do. I mean, we're teachers to the core, and, and the, the thing is, is is for us to be able to, to get them to, to learn and understand not only what they want to achieve, but, you know, what we're bringing to the table to help them to achieve that. So, yeah, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. Um, you know, one of the big advantages I had, you know, spending – you know, more than 16 years with, with John Jacobs schools is you get to see a ton of people. And so you, mm-hmm. you get to see all those different learning styles and, you know, you, you have to make quick work of what you're doing. And, and I, I agree with that. I think, you know, you, you should be able to get them to learn. That's what they're there for. And, you know, not, all, not always does it have to be, a, you know, a hundred percent, you know, because sometimes there's, there's some things that they may be asking you that are going to take a little bit of time. But I think in every lesson that that uh, you give, that should be a great learning environment. Uh, that's that, to me, that's what it's all about. Uh, I, I would agree with that. On the other hand, uh, Allison, I'm going to ask you this question a little bit differently. 
Um, in a perfect world, I would agree exactly what you just said, Pete, but we've all had experiences perhaps where we're now working with a student or a student has uh, come into our facility that has maybe had some bad experiences uh, previously with a, a teacher professional or a coach. So right away, they're very guarded, they're very closed-minded, um, and are not receptive to learning. So how do we decipher that? Um, is there ways that we can sort of, without you know, getting into a, a, a he-said-she-said battle, how do we combat uh, somebody with, with that type of approach, that you know they've come in there, they've maybe expressed that they've taken lessons before, and you can tell just by their, their, whether their body language or their mannerisms that they're not receptive. Um, does that same uh, phrase apply in your mind, or is there something different? You know, it's a difficult situation. When you've got a resistant student, it's, it's difficult. Um, I think when you ask them what they want, you, the instructor needs to hear that and to do mm-hmm. everything possible to provide fulfilling what they want, provided that it's realistic. And a quote that's been told to me that I've sort of really embraced in my teaching and my business is it's less about what I say and it's more about how I make the student feel. And so really the content on some level is going to get lost, but the student is really going to remember how I made them feel in that lesson. And so with a resistant student who may not be receptive to learning, I'm going to take a little bit of a different approach, really get them on my side to work with them collaboratively and make them feel good about what they're doing, whether that's hitting the golf ball better, whether that's – furthering their understanding of their own game, whether that's helping them discover something new about themselves. It's going to be making sure that they walk away feeling better about themselves, and they might be more attracted to further instruction after that. Yeah, I think it falls into – it's very – you know, golf is very similar uh, in a lot of ways to sales. Um, And let me just draw the the comparison. I don't mean just selling golf lessons or selling equipment, um, but how you approach – uh, individuals uh, in a sales call, of course, um, sometimes things go great. Somebody comes in, they're excited about the product or service that you have to offer, and it's an easy close. But then there's others that you're you're meeting with uh, ob- objections or objectives um, pertaining to whatever service or, or um, product that you're providing. So you need to be able to handle those uh, objections um, with a certain amount of skill. And, and as you just sort of pointed out, Allison, sort of flip things around and get them in a different way of thinking and not just sort of combative or, or in a negative mindset. So uh, I think that that would maybe be a good way to, uh, to approach it as well. Um, Monty, I want to ask you this uh, question if I can, and, and obviously the others, uh, Pete and, and Allison, you can certainly jump in when, when Monty's finished. Um, enthusiasm is contagious. Again, this is a statement, so we want to let ours uh, show. Um, we talked a little bit about Having a you know being positive and, and making a golf lesson more rewarding for both the teacher and student, uh, and be fun with it. Um, one of the things that I would say I would criticize, and this goes to everything, not just in golf, uh, Monty, is the last thing a student needs to be seeing is you looking at your watch, um, you know, with a little bit of antsiness or anticipation for your next lesson or so forth. Um, how important is that to, to make sure that we're showing enthusiasm uh, with their uh, lesson? and not just look like we're, we're waiting for the next one or, or we're in a rush uh, to sort of get this lesson over. Um, how important is that? It, it's really funny you say that because um, 
I take, I take notes during all my lessons. Um, so, you know, after, you know, maybe midway through the lesson, I'll have my phone out and I'll be typing some stuff into my phone about some of the stuff we worked on. So if the student calls me or sends me an email, you know, I'll be able to refer back to my notes and also, you know, I can, I can measure progress. And when I first started doing this, maybe the third or fourth lesson, someone said, Oh, you know, you, you playing angry birds back there during my lesson. And I'm like, Oh no, 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 no. I'm taking notes. And so, so I've made it a point that whenever, you know, I sit down to do that, I say, just so you know, these are notes on your lesson and I'm not, you know, playing a video game back here. So that as a sideline, I, I agree with you a hundred percent. Um, if they notice your, your clock watching or, uh, I mean, I've seen it firsthand in front of me with somebody else, uh, that's not going to send a, a, a very good message. And uh, a lot of the lessons I give are people come in from out of town and I'm with them, you know, four or five hours in a row. Uh, and, you know, maintaining that enthusiasm and interest in what they're doing, you know, can be difficult at times, but, you know, that's, that's your job. Your job is to be fully vested in whatever this person needs, whether it's, you know, to have a sounding board about how frustrated they are about their game or, you know, wanting the, a a lot of people will, you know, we talked about the technical discussions before, They'll hear right. all of these buzzwords, and they want to know what they mean, if nothing else, and they can say, oh, well, that doesn't apply to me, so I can throw that out. So to answer, you know, to sum up, yes, you, you need to be fully vested in what you're doing the whole time you're in front of that person. Right. Um, Allison, what about your uh, take on that? Obviously, you know, we want to look like we're enjoying ourselves, as, uh, you know, with the students and they need to see our enthusiasm. And if we're, <clears throat> we're looking, you know, downrange or we're looking, uh, you know, sort of around about and not really focusing on the task at hand, um, just as, as Monty pointed out, you know, students are going to pick up on that. Uh, some may not, but a good many of them are going to pick up on that. And that sends a, a negative message as well. So uh, how, do we, how do we sort of juggle that, uh, that angle as well? Being enthusiastic on the lesson, being um, patient, of course, but being tentative, uh, to that particular student's needs, um, while at the same time, uh, you know, drawing information as Monty pointed out and, and gathering that information so we can better service and, and help our clients. Um, how do we find a balance there? Well, I really like Monty's response. I mean, I'm totally on board, and, and I'm sure Pete agrees too. I mean, you have to be super invested in your in your student. I mean, they will feel it. They can they know when you're not paying attention, and I think that when we're really invested with our students, that enthusiasm comes out naturally. And I don't find that it's hard work to be enthusiastic because I really, really like what I do. And that comes across as passion. And it certainly is contagious. Um, We do have to monitor what we're doing with our watch and what we're doing with our phone. And and I I personally don't take notes during the lesson. I use an iPad uh, that videos my students playing and I never have my cell phone out. The only time that I'm pulling my cell phone out is if I'm scheduling a lesson. Um, mm-hmm. I've taken notes during the lesson. It's great. It's very time efficient and you can certainly send that to the student very quickly. Um, but I like how Monty started to learn how 
I'm going to tell you what I'm doing so that you don't get that impression that you know, right. I'm not paying attention or I'm not with you. Um, but I really think that when you form a connection with the student, number one, time flies. You're having fun. Yes. You're in the moment. Uh, you're not focusing about what you're going to have for lunch or when's this lesson going to be over. Um, it makes it really easy, and, and the enthusiasm comes out naturally. And so the advice that I'd give to, to coaches is, is if you struggle with that, it's to really just be mindful, to be in the moment with the student and to empathize with what they're experiencing, to put yourself in their shoes for just one moment to see how frustrated they might feel hitting a golf ball and how joyous they might feel when they finally connect with that golf ball. Right. Well said. Um, Pete, if a student is smiling, you're making progress along this theme that we're just talking about. Uh, would that be an accurate statement? And, and what are your thoughts about uh, uh, being enthusiastic during lessons? Well, we have, it's, you can talk to a lot of my students. We have a, we have a great time. We have a lot of fun. Um, you know, I want to make the lessons, uh, you know, as much of a learning environment as possible, but I have, I have fun with them and I make sure they're having a good time. And, and sometimes a smile can be, there are some smiles when they look at you, it's like, yeah, they're smiling, but it's, it's not one of those smiles that's uh, totally enjoyable, but no, I mean, right. I, I agree with them wholeheartedly, both with, with what they're saying. It's, you, you have to have a good atmosphere. You have to have a good environment and it's, it's only conducive to the learning that they're going to get. And uh, I've always tried to make it a lot of fun um, and, and, you know, to make it so that they, they understand. And, you know, one of the things I do, I mean, I, I, I do take some video. I do use my phone, but it's it, towards the end of every lesson because I use Edgify, I will bring them back and I will put the notes into their uh, space so that they understand them. They, I want them to see the notes we're putting in there, and I want them to understand what they mean so that when they go to look back at them, they know what I was talking about. So uh, in that particular case, uh, I agree with Monty. I make sure they know what I'm doing. Um, but right. uh, the, the other time, you know, I, I would only I would only use that for video or showing them back a video if I'm doing that. Um, but you know, as far as notes go, I, I like to I like to have them finish up understanding what we worked on and then get the notes in there so that they understand that moving forward. You know, it reminds me. Well said, Pete. Um, it reminds me of a, a sort of an interesting thing that happened to me some years ago, probably about 25 or so years ago. Um, I used to um, go to a local range and, you know, just when I would work on my own game. And, uh, you know, I was a, uh, well, I shouldn't say was, I still am a pretty good ball striker, but I was uh, obviously much better in my younger days. Um, but there just happened to be a, a, a gentleman there that was always giving lessons. And, and I didn't work at this facility, but I just went up there to practice. And I can remember, this is going back to, you know, when everybody had the handheld camcorders. Now everybody's got their iPad or iPhone or what have you um, recording video. But And nine times out of ten, he'd be looking down at me while giving his lesson and recording my swing as opposed to focusing on a student. And as God is my witness, one time during a lesson – the student actually stopped in midstream because he realized what he was doing and came down and asked me if I wouldn't mind joining the lesson um, because he was cognizant of the fact that his uh, instructor wasn't paying attention to him and was paying attention to me. Now, I knew the instructor very well, and, and of course, I went down and bailed him out. But, you know, this goes to what I was trying to get at is, you know, we, we have to be cognizant of what our students are, are, are doing 
and paying attention and not looking downrange or not looking you know around as though we're disinterested because from time to time they're going to now that's obviously an extreme case but they're going to pick up on that. So I want to ask you something else, uh, and Alice, I'm going to go back to you here and start through the panel that way. Um, some do this very successfully, others don't, and obviously I'm going to preface this a little bit. Uh, using humor uh, in teaching golf, is that a, an okay thing to do, um, provided we're not getting into uh, some off-color jokes? Uh, what's your thought on that? Um, where do you where do you draw the line with using humor, or is that something um, left to to the comedians like Jerry Seinfeld or somebody like that? What are your thoughts on on bringing humor into uh, a golf lesson? Well, I think humor needs to come naturally. I mean, if it's forced, it's it's certainly a little bit awkward, and it's hard to really know what a student's level of humor is if they're new to you. If you have a really good rapport with them and you've worked with them for a while, you might start to pick up a little bit on their nuances, but um, I think in order for humor to be effective, both people need to be laughing. And so if you're, if you're making a joke and you're not getting the reception that you're looking for, the student may not just be in that state of mind where humor is something that they're, they're looking for. They might be really focused on their swing. They might be experiencing some different emotions. So I think a student, uh, an instructor needs to tread lightly when, when using humor, obviously taking, um, social hot topics off the table, politics, right. you know, money, right. things like that. Um, but to be lighthearted, I would say, might be a different word to use, where I think being lighthearted is being fun, being friendly, being relaxed. Um, and that might be a better way to go than trying to create a, a joke. And certainly if the humor is derogatory at all, that's going to affect the student's esteem. Right. And, uh, and as I said, if it's an off-color joke, um, or, or something that somebody, I mean, again, we all, and not to, to jump on the politically correct bandwagon, but we also have to be careful because what might seem funny to you might not seem funny to somebody else. And, and as you pointed out, Allison, you know, you don't want to get into uh, certain hot buttons, if you will, that, that we see in um, the media or what have you and bring that into your, your lesson because a lesson can go bad real quick. Uh, if you happen to offend somebody. Um, but Pete, what about a great icebreaker? I mean, again, even if you're the brunt of the joke, um, is that a good idea, do you think, to, to help sort of ease, especially with newer students that maybe are a little tense or uncomfortable, um, finding something humorous uh, in, in, in yourself maybe that you want to bring out, that again, that's not going to be uh, taken the wrong way? Well, I think you could certainly do that. I'm, I mean, I agree with Allison that you need to be lighthearted you can be funny, but be lighthearted, and you know, um, you know, you don't necessarily have to have to tell jokes to to, to have some things that are sure. funny and fun. Um, you know, I always try to get uh, when I first get them there. The thing that I always like to do first, I ask them how their day's going, how's the family, how are the kids if they have kids, so how's the job going. So I always try to talk and, and ask them how they are doing first, and that sort of gives me an idea of where they're coming from and what kind of mood they're in and how their week's been and things that are going on. And then it, it, it lets me, you know, direct that in a direction that, you know, I can slowly be a little bit more light, lighthearted, uh, you know, as we move along or, you know, they want to be serious right now. Um, but I always try to get a little bit into what, what they're about and what's going on in their life as we start off and just to see how they're doing. And, and that to me is how I break the ice. I want to find out how they're doing. And uh, and then from there I say, oh well, what about your golf game? Should we talk about that? 
And so, you know, right. I always like to get a good good feel for them at the start, regardless of keeping golf out of it, and just see, you know, what's going on with your life and uh, where do we go from here. Yeah, I, I think I agree with, with that. Um, and, again, I, I you know, humor can certainly be brought in, but you've got to be very, very careful. And, Monty, I think – maybe a way that I would maybe approach things a little bit differently to, to engage in some lighthearted conversation is opposed to just jumping right in. Now, obviously, uh, a student you've been working with for a little while, they may want to, uh, because of time restrictions, they may want to you know, dive right into that lesson. But for a new student, I think it's good to break the ice, maybe ask them a little bit about uh, them personally without, again, getting too personal, but um, to get, get them open up and, and conversing in that. Uh, a, a good idea maybe to approach things a little bit differently as opposed to, uh, you know, throwing some slapstick humor in, uh, in the golf lesson? You know, it, it, again, rapport with a regular and, you know, slapstick humor is part of what, why they enjoy coming there to get away right. from the seriousness of life. That's great. And I have that rapport with a lot of students. Um, again, it's it, it, this, the same same concept comes up over and over again. You have to be able to read the individual and connect with them on a personal level. Some people you're going to need to be very, very serious and straightforward with. Some people you need to kind of, you know, be a little self-deprecating to kind of break the ice. And some people you can just, you know, they show up and they're the ones telling the off-color jokes. And then you offer one back at them because that's the relationship you have with that person. It's all about relationships and connecting with a person on a personal level and knowing who your audience is. You know, if, if you've got a guy who, you know, isn't too serious about himself and just wants to come and learn a little bit about his swing and you're super, super serious, he's not going to come back. And then as already has been discussed, you know, if you tell an off color joke to someone who's pretty serious and not into that, they're not going to come back. So it's, right. you know, just like, you, just like you have to be individual with the learning process of the student, you have to be individual with connecting with that person, uh, you know, it, it, whether it's how you, how you uh, direct the humor, so to speak. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think it, it goes back to what we, we all discussed in the very beginning of the show, and that is really uh, understanding uh, the students helping them, uh, working with them to help set their their goals, and it also goes back to doing uh, an assessment of the student, understanding the the assistant, uh, the student's uh, learning style, um, how we can best tailor make uh, lessons around that, uh, and and getting a feel for for them as a, as a human being as opposed to just um, you know running through the numbers and saying okay well here's another student and you know this is lesson number three. Uh, and going through. So I think a better understanding of the individual that you're dealing with uh, can help open that door a little bit too, as you pointed out, Monty. I mean, if you've been working with a student for a little while and, and you, you know their personality and you know what's sort of uh, off limits and what's not, then you can have a little bit of fun perhaps. But uh, students, when you're, when you're first working with them, um, you, you've got to be a little bit careful. And I think just getting them to open up and engage about themselves. People like to talk about themselves. You know, what are their interests outside yeah. of golf? Um, sometimes is a good icebreaker as well. Um, Guys, great answers tonight. Uh, there, was, there was, believe it or not, a theme 
uh, of tonight. And that was really just to sort of uh, open the door for the season, if you will, to uh, both the, the golf professionals out there that are listening to the show and for the students that, um, you know, it's not just, just about giving golf lessons. It's about building relationships uh, as well that can be lifelong in many cases. Um, sometimes uh, students want just that quick fix, and, and that's okay too, but others want to develop a relationship much like they would uh, in other areas of their life, in their business life and so forth. So this is some great opportunities that we have, and as I promised uh, to all of you, I'm going to give you an opportunity to uh, share with the audience how they can uh, reach out to you and maybe get more information, and, and uh, perhaps if they're in your area, uh, can can seek your your uh, expert counsel, if you will, out on the golf course. So, Allison, ladies first, I'm going to go with you. How can the folks that are tuning in uh, learn more about you? Where can they go to get that information? They can go to my website, com, and that's sort of the hub of my business where you can get onto Facebook and see some content and tips. You can access some videos that will bring you to my YouTube site. Um, you can go to Twitter as well. And there's also a link to my mental coaching site. So for anyone who's interested in, in mental coaching, you'll be able to see the new website for Kurt Performance Therapy. So when you want to take your physical game to the next level and start working on your mental game, that would be the website to head to. Perfect. Thank you, as always, Allison. Um, Pete, next up. They can get a hold of me at uh, my website. It's plainsimplegolf.com. That's P-L-A-N-E, plainsimplegolf.com. And all the contact information and a lot of the different uh, areas of uh, instruction that are out there. I, I do quite a bit of uh, my instruction online, and so I work with players all over the world. And so those that are listening from other areas can check out uh, some of the online things that I do and uh, how all that works. And, um, you know, that's how, they, that's how they can find me. Perfect. And, and Monty, what about yourself? What, can, uh, what would you like to share with the audience? Uh, yeah, my, my website is montysheinbloom.com, and uh, my YouTube channel is Hit It Long. And uh, I got a couple of golf schools coming up in uh, San Jose and Phoenix, if uh, anybody is in uh, those areas. Uh, and that's, uh, that's where you can find out about what I'm doing. Now, the, the golf schools, just very quickly, they can learn more about that through your website as well? Yes. Okay, Perfect. Well, listen, guys, uh, as always, I, I appreciate, as I said at the beginning, I appreciate uh, you giving of your time. And I know you've all uh, want to kick back and relax or have other things that you need to do to, to spend for the rest of your evening. But on that note, thank you very much uh, for joining me on, on Coach's Corner tonight. And I look forward to having you guys back uh, on future shows as well. So, uh, again, on behalf of uh, myself, thank you very much, Allison Kurt, uh, Pete Buchanan, and Monty Scheinbloom for joining me on the first Coach's Corner panel discussion of 2017. Thanks, everybody, and have a, a great week, and I uh, look forward to uh, having you back again soon. Thank thanks you so much. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks, guys. All right. That was my very special uh, inauguration of Coach's Corner Panel for 2017, um, and uh, they did a great job. It was uh, a little bit light conversation, nothing too uh, in-depth tonight, and, and I want to do that specifically to uh, – sort of ease everybody in, although many of us, uh, myself included, live in uh, more uh, warmer clients, uh, climates throughout the year. Uh, I wanted to give them an opportunity to uh, uh, sort of do a spring thaw, if you will, as everybody gets ready in the Northeast and other parts of, uh, of the globe that maybe are, are a little cooler and haven't started uh, getting out and playing golf yet. So um, 
a little light conversation this, uh, earlier this show. And I'm going to be joined by uh, my very special guest, John Decker, here in just a moment. But I want to uh, just remind everybody that for those of you that tuned into the show uh, a few weeks ago, you'll recall uh, one of my very good friends, Jamie Leno-Zimron, who's a, a great teach professional herself, and uh, a couple of others, uh, uh, Connie Charles and Dave uh, Bisbee, were on from IMAP Golf. Uh, well, they wanted me to let uh, the folks know that we're tuning into the show that they have a special offer uh, we were talking about their online questionnaire, which, of course, uh, helps through, uh, as we were talking about tonight, through an assessment process, and uh, you're able to do this online. So uh, here's the uh, the deal, and they've uh, worked out a very special deal for, for my listeners. And if you go to www.imapgolf.com, that's uh, I-M-A-P-G-O-L-F.com, uh, and uh, you sign up and use the promo code GOLFTALK, uh, that's in capital letters, then you'll receive... Uh, the uh, IMAP My Golf Game questionnaire online uh, for just $9.95. And this will, of course, help you uh, sort of do an online assessment and uh, better understand uh, how, you can, uh, uh, how you can do things. So um, go to imapgolf.com and type in Golf Talk in the promo code section. And for $9.95, you can uh, do their uh, IMAP uh, online a questionnaire. So go to imapgolf.com. As I mentioned, I've got a another uh, very special guest joining me uh, here this evening, and uh, I'll do a quick inter- introduction, and I will um, bring him on board so we can have a discussion about a, a great book that he has written. He is the author of this book. It's called Golf is My Life, Glorifying God Through the Game. He's also a motivational speaker uh, for Celebrate Sports Tour Foundation, and uh, here's just a few other uh, things as well that uh, you need to know about him. He has uh, also been a, a golf instructor. And I'm going to tell you here in just a moment, and I lost my page, so bear with me. I apologize. Uh, he was the director of instruction for the New Albany uh, Country Club in New Albany, Ohio, for 10 years. He was also the head instructor for the Grand Cypress Academy of Golf in Orlando, Florida, for 20 years. Uh, he was also the 2015 Southern Ohio uh, teacher of the year and has taught uh, numerous players uh, both on the uh, PGA, LPGA tours, web.com tour, and many of the other mini tours. Uh, he's also taught at the PGA Championship for four years uh, as well as at the Women's U.S. Open in 2007, played on some of the Florida mini tours, and graduated in 1990 uh, from the East Carolina University. And as I mentioned, he is the author of the book, Golf is My Life, Glorifying God through the game. We're going to talk about that here uh, tonight on Golf Talk Live. So let me welcome my very special guest tonight, John Decker. Ted, how are you John. today? I'm doing very well. Um, first off, thank you for uh, for sending me a copy of the book, and uh, I appreciate that. And it's been so far a very interesting read. And uh, I want to give you an opportunity to talk about the book in, in uh, as much detail as you like. We've got some time here tonight, so. Sure. Uh, but let me just let me just get you to sort of I, I, I just sort of paraphrased, I guess, some of the, the, the general information uh, about you. But maybe you can get into a little bit more specifics about how you actually got into golf. Uh, give us a little bit more on the backstory, if you wouldn't mind. I'd love to. And thanks, Ted, for having me on your show. Um, when I was a kid, my dream was to be a PGA Tour player. Um, I just uh, I love the game. Uh, I first got exposed to the game through my father. Um, and I talk about this in the book, um, but um, I, I just loved playing the game. I, I Jack Nicholas was my idol, 
And when I went to the Masters uh, in 1980, I went to the practice round. And uh, when I was there, I, that was, that's when the dream really took hold on, in my heart. And I said, you know, I want to be a, a PGA Tour player. And so um, my journey uh, led me to East Carolina. And then um, uh, after college, I kind of floundered a little bit, really didn't know what I wanted to do. I really did not want to be a club professional uh, per se, where I was just working in a pro shop. Uh, that really didn't interest me. And um, I went down to Orlando and uh, just happened to fall in. Uh, one of my friends, uh, Rich Thurston, actually led me to um, to the uh, Grand Cypress Academy of Golf. And the first time I, I, the very first day, I stood there on the tee and I watched those teachers out there teaching. I said, this is what I want to do with my life. And I just absolutely fell in love with teaching. And um, and that's really how it all started. Um, and so it's just been a great journey. I, from there, I I spent I spent 20 years in Florida, and then from there I went to Ohio, uh, and I and had a great uh, experience there in Ohio for 10 years. And now I'm um, I've written a book, and and I'm uh, you know trying to promote the book and doing a lot of public speaking and really enjoying it. What what I found really interesting um, about this book, I you know right from the get go in in the um, introduction. You talk about really, uh, and we're going to get into a little more of that, obviously, as we continue on the discussion, but I want you to explain um, really how this book came about. Uh, obviously, you talk very candidly about your uh, your spiritual journey through life. Obviously, you, you uh, were a regular uh, churchgoer, if you will, at a very young age, attended, um, uh, obviously, church very regularly, Bible uh, camp and so forth, uh, as many have yes. before. But there was something that was a little bit more... I guess profound that that really changed the way you perceived your spiritual side of things, and, and we're going to talk about that and how it relates to the book. But just explain maybe a little bit, if you don't mind, um, that sort of profound experience that you had earlier in your life. You're talking about the the dream I had. Um, yes, I, I'm assuming. Yes, um, the uh, when I was in high school, I was uh, a sophomore in high school. Um, I had bronchitis. I was extremely sick. I went to bed, uh, and it's it's one of those. It's almost like you just dread going to bed because you're so sick that you just uh, you you know you're not going to sleep. You know you're going to be up all night, and and I was just it, it was a horrible experience. And um, uh, in the early morning hours, um, I started um, hearing. Um, I heard mm-hmm. angels. I heard angels singing, um, and I didn't know what was going on. They were singing in different languages. Uh, I could pick up hints of. Uh, French and Spanish and all these different languages, but I really, I didn't know what they were singing, but it was beautiful. It was just absolutely beautiful. And um, then I heard, um, I heard in the distance um, um, this rumbling and it was almost like if you're standing in a field and in the mountains, you can hear rumbling of thunder. Um, I heard um, some, I heard Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and I, I could hear just very, and I, I did. I still, at this point, was very confused. But I heard, right. um, "I am the Alpha. I am the Omega. I'm the beginning. I'm the end." And it sounded like thunder going off. And I knew it was God. I knew God was speaking to me. And this entire dream was in black and white. And so hmm. from there, um, I started seeing pictures of family members who had died uh, that I knew. I would I would yell their names, but they would just go by me. And the pictures were going by me very fast. And I saw pictures of a lot of people who I did not know. Um, and through this, again, it's all in black and white. As I start getting, um, more into the, you know, the, the people going by, I heard the audible voice, uh, of one of the angels saying to me, 
this light was sent to you by. And I didn't understand what they meant by light. And the dream immediately turned from black and white to color. And I saw the most beautiful light I've ever seen in my life came shooting down at me. And I knew who it was. I knew it was Jesus. I raised my hands in the air. I was crying. Um, and I, I asked Jesus, I said, please take me. And he said, it's not your time. You have much work to do. And uh, again, I'm a sophomore in high school. You know, I don't know right. really how to take that. I mean, what, are you, you're, what am I going to do with this? I felt my, my soul come out of my body. And, um, and it, for a few seconds, went back into my body, and I was immediately healed. I woke up. I, there was nothing wrong with me. I went running up the steps. I told my parents. And from there, I went to the, that, the very next day, I went straight to my church. I went and talked to my pastor. And I really don't believe, I really didn't get the sense that he believed me. Um, and, um, and I just kind of tucked this away. But it was, it was really profound because at that time in my life, there was, there was nothing I was going to do with that dream that was going to really impact lives, but it stuck with me. And that dream has never left me. And I left out some of the details and you can read about that. Sure. The readers can read about that in the book, but it, I knew that God wanted me to do something with that dream. And as I started going down to Orlando and I started teaching, I never in my life ever wanted to write a book. When I would sit there and I would teach stories automatically just started forming in my mind about my life. And I, I could not, I could not get rid of them in my mind. Augusta, the ch first chapter of my book, was in my head for 20 years. And I, right. I, didn't, I, never, I never wrote down one note for the book. The whole book was filed in my head. All 19 chapters were filed away. Uh, when I finally decided to write the book, I just went down each, and I knew what they were. I had them by name. I said, Augusta, closet door. I just went boom, boom, boom lifted them all out and then started writing and I didn't write it in order. I started with chapter 17 and then I went to chapter one and it just bounced around because that's the way right. God had filed them in my mind. It wasn't, you know, this book is to glorify God. It's not to glorify me. And, and that's what I tell when I speak now and I stand up in front of people, I say, you know, I'm so thankful that I didn't win the U S open, that I didn't win the masters. And people are looking at me like, what? Because my dream was to be a PGA tour player. But if I had won the masters, I would have stood up in front of the world. I would have put the green jacket on and I would have taken the credit. I would have thanked my right. swing coach. I would have thanked my family. I, ne I never would have thanked God. I have to give God the glory for this book because I, this is not what I wanted to do with my life. I did not want to go into this direction. And it has been a leap of faith. It's been, you know, when I first started writing, I said, people are going to think I'm crazy, but uh, <laughs> it's been really for the first time in my life, I actually feel like I'm living. Do you know, John, what, what's interesting about that, that part of the story that sort of resonates to me, and I don't know whether, and, I, and I, this is why I'm going to ask you this, at the time or when you came out of that dream, was there a part of you that thought, wow, did I, did I just have a, a near-death experience? Because a lot of people might draw that from, from the way you describe it in, in that book, is that, especially when you said that you, know, you felt that you're uh, spirit left your body and then re-entered it. And of course, um, yes. when you woke up, you, you were feeling better. Did you at that time as a youngster, I mean, you were a sophomore in high school, did you feel that, wow, I'm, you know, did I die? You know, cause you were sick when you went to sleep. Did you have that sense uh, at that time? Was that something that went yeah, through your mind? I, no? I, yes. I, years later in 2012, I met with my pastor and I'd stuck this away in my head for 30 years and I'd only told a few people. 
about it. And um, um, he, he told me, and, I, and this is something I didn't mention about my dream, but when Jesus appeared to me in the form of light, I could not see his face. He was audibly talking to me, and, but I could not see his face. But as I looked down, I could see his body. And he opened his hand. I could see his feet. And when he opened his hands, the, where the nails were, the, the light just shone right through it. And that's when I was healed. That's when the, he healed me, when, when he opened his hands t- toward me. But the important thing that, that I found from talking to my pastor, Pastor Mike Bowie up in uh, Stony Brook United Methodist right. Church up in, up in Ohio, when I was talking with him, I asked him, I said, did I die? And he said, no, John, because you could not see Jesus's face. And he said, when you, when, if, when you die, you will be able to see his face, but because you were still alive, you could not see his face. I could see the rest of his body. So, and and that's, that's documented in the scriptures. Um, So that's something that I I know now, no, I did not die. I was sick. I was extremely sick. Uh, But it, it was an example because I'd always asked myself as a kid, I always said, well, Jesus was everywhere and all these miracles were going on in the Bible, but why has none of this stuff ever happened in my lifetime? And God answered that, uh, that request uh, probably about 10 years after I, I asked that in Bible camp. Uh, because I, I did like all kids. You know, it, there's nothing wrong with sure. asking questions. You know, why, did this, why is this not happening? But I, I learned that, you know, God is very patient. And he picks mm-hmm. his his uh, moments uh, in our lives to make his appearance and 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 really make a profound impact on our lives. I want to well said. Um, I want to just something that I found very humorous, but I want you to um, maybe explain a little bit to to uh, the audience here um, with respect to your pastor, um, Dr. Michael uh, Bowie. Um, on uh, I think it's page yeah page eleven at the very bottom of the picture of the two of you together, you, you uh, make this statement. You say, our first golf lesson, I gave uh, Pastor Mike a dozen golf balls and said, these are your 12 disciples, but they do not walk on water. water excuse me. What did you mean when you said that statement? And obviously there was uh, a little humor in there as well, but um, uh, what were the message you were trying to relay to him at that time? Well, you know, Pastor Mike, I, I gave him one golf lesson, and unfortunately he – he went to Dallas, Texas. Literally, he was there about a year and a half. I kind of caught him at the tail end of his – in the Methodist church, about every five or six years they, they rotate sure. around. And so he was going right. down, and, and I kind of wanted to – because he was such a – just impactful in my life. And I was on a, a bad path. I was not living a very good – a very – the life that I knew God wanted for me to live. And so he really got me back into church worship, and, 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 uh, and so I wanted to thank him. So I invited him to the golf lesson, and he – we had a great, it was one of those, it was supposed to be an hour and it turned into an hour and a half, an hour and 45 minutes. And we talked about all kinds of things. And so after the lesson, I gave him the balls and he was struggling a little bit, but he, he's, he had a pretty good swing. And, and I just wanted to, to, you know, I, I want, when I teach a lesson, you know, golf is difficult. It's a very difficult game. And I, I, mm-hmm. I think it's important as a teacher uh, to, to add a little humor, to make things a little light, make things fun. Because, um, you know, when people, you have to put your, uh, when, when, when a student comes to you, a lot of times they are in, so intimidated because they look at me and they go, well, you only work with tour players and really good players. And I say, no, you know, I really make my living teaching beginners. I don't make my living uh, teaching tour players, believe me. I mean, it's, it, you know, the new players are, are, and the people coming in the game, what we want. And so I just wanted to make them feel comfortable. And, 
and we still laugh about that. And and I told some of the other people in the in the in the pastoral staff, and they all laughed. And and uh, I just thought that was uh, kind of a funny moment in the book. Um, and exactly why I wanted to share that. Now, uh, I, what I'd like for you to do, John, um, is a couple of things tonight. Is I'd like you to maybe share. I mean, obviously, we don't want to give too much of the book away um, and, and some of the stories because we want obviously people to go out there and and purchase a copy. But uh, maybe you could share. Um, just a little bit of some of the stories that you're sharing in the book. Maybe you could take from one of the chapters. Um, and let's, why don't we start with chapter one, Augusta. Um, what was your thought process in this chapter? What were you trying to convey uh, to the readers here? The thing that I want the readers to understand is God has a plan for your life. My plan was to be born in Augusta, Georgia. And uh, I could not think, for someone that's going into the golf business and being a golfer, I, there's not another place in the world. If I, if God had pulled me up before I was ever born and said, John, where do you want to be born? I'd say Augusta, Georgia. And so right. um, I only lived in Augusta two months. And this is what I'm 50 now, two months out of my life. My parents were there four months. My father was in the military and I was born at Fort Gordon for four months of, of their life. And they're now both in their seventies. For four mm. months of their life, they lived in Augusta, Georgia. God specifically chose that point. For, for for them to for my mother to to uh, have you know for me to be born as in Augusta and so that's one of the things I want the readers to get out of that also my love for Augusta my, um, you know that it's it's is my alpha that is where my life began and when God spoke to me and said I am the alpha I am the omega he specifically is you know there is a beginning and he has an end to my life he has my life mapped out and it's up to me to trust him in that and so that i wanted to lay that kind of a foundation down the book even though it's ever it's got wonderful golf stories in it i wanted Mm -hmm. it to have the feel of when you read it that it's laid out very similar to the way the bible would be laid out i'm not saying i'm not comparing it to that but i'm just saying the feel that i wanted the reader to have um Something else, too, and, and you mentioned this in, a, in an email recently, and I wanted to make a point of bringing this up. Um, the editor on this, of course, was Pete McDaniel. And for those of you that, yeah. uh, that are listening that don't know uh, Pete McDaniel, of course, uh, again, he was the editor on your book. Uh, Pete co-authored the late Earl Woods best-selling book, uh, Training a Tiger, as well as Tiger Woods' bestseller, How I Play Golf. And uh, he was also the author of Uneven Lies, the Heroic Story of African Americans in Golf, and I want to specifically mention for a couple of reasons. Number one, I had him on the show here uh, a few years ago to talk about Uneven Lies. And uh, we had a great conversation and, and um, certainly respect uh, Mr. McDaniel very much for all that he has given to the game. And, of course, he was a, a senior writer for Golf Digest. Um, tell us the story here, um, how you and Pete uh, sort of uh, met and, and uh, how he uh, helped on this book. What was uh, sort of the, the transition there? Well, Pete, I actually wrote about this in the book. It's in Chapter 18. It's called uh, – it's part of uh, – Chapter 18 has 11 short stories, and it's called Never Forget a Name. And I was working in Orlando in the pro shop. I was I was in my early 30s, and I was just cutting my teeth into teaching. And, and, and uh, Pete walked into the door – walked through the door and said, uh, excuse me, sir. He said, uh, can you tell me where the – where the restroom is. And I said, well, it's down the hall on your right. And he looked at my name tag. I was wearing my name tag. And he goes, John Decker. And it just had John Decker. It didn't have anything else. He goes, I know that name. And he goes, I, he goes, I may forget a face, but I never forget a name. And he walked through, he walked to the restroom and I thought he was crazy. I said, this guy is just, 
he's just trying to butter me up or whatever. And so he walked back in a few minutes later and he goes, did you go to Charles D. Owen high school? And I was like, yes. And now keep in mind, I'm in Orlando, Florida. Charles D. Owen high school is in Western North Carolina where I grew up. Mm -hmm. I couldn't believe that he knew where I went to high school. And I said, yes. And he goes, well, I'm, my name's Pete McDaniel, and I used to be the uh, the sports editor for the Hendersonville newspaper. And he goes, I remember covering you in basketball and golf. And we started talking like we had known each other for 20 years. <laughs> and, and, just ha- and, and I started giving him lessons, and then he started filling me in. You know, this was when Tiger was the number one player in the world. And, and uh, right. so he was, you know, covering – I mean, he and Tiger were really good friends, and, and, and he was traveling with him and doing all this – all the in- and so I got a lot of inside little stories and stuff, and I would always ask questions and stuff. And and but Pete is is someone you know God's again chose Pete McDaniel to to help me because I never could have done this without Pete McDaniel. Um, and and Pete has just been such a a wonderful, you know, it, we had a business relationship, but it, but it's been more than that. He's been a friend and a brother. And I and I love him, and I, I I don't know how I could have done it without him. I'm just so blessed that and thankful that he he came into my life and and has helped me through this process. And he's um, someone that I'll you know always consider a friend. And and if I ever write another book, uh, he, he'll be the first. Now what? Yeah, he was he was great. I enjoyed having him on the show, and and uh, it, I agree wholeheartedly. It was an honor and pleasure um, to, to share that time with him. Let me ask you, obviously, as a teacher professional, and, and as I mentioned in the opening uh, uh, comments that uh, you, you did play some on, on some of the mini tours, um, sure. what, if anything, did you draw from those experiences when you were writing this book, uh, Golf, my, uh, Golf is My Life, uh, Glorifying God Through the Game? What, through your own personal uh, experience in golf, um, helped you to, to uh, uh, put forth this book? Well, the one thing, the one characteristic that I have is persistence. I mean, if you know, if anybody that knows me, they know that I'm a very persistent person. And when I get my, put my mind to something, I do it. I mean, it took me four years to write this book and I spent literally every day of four years uh, of of doing it. So um, one of the qualities that I got from playing on the mini tours is the persistence and um, uh, playing. I remember I, I wasn't a, a, an all-star player. I think the best professional finish I had on the mini tours was a third-place finish, and it was on the Moonlight Tour. And I paid 80 bucks or something. I think it was $80 to play in that. And I got out there, and I i mean, I played as hard as I could and everything, and I had a two-shot penalty. I shot a 71 with a two-shot penalty and came in third place, and I got a check for $85. <laughs> so when it was all said and done, I'd made $5. And and I I just remember thinking to myself, there's got to be a better way to make a living because this I'm just not cutting it from from that standpoint. And I knew it, but I didn't give up. And the reason I didn't give up playing for the, all those years on the on the mini tours there in Florida is I wanted to have the perspective of of that so that if I worked with a tour player, I could relate to them. And that was the biggest reason why I kept at it. I did it more for the the experience so that I could help the student and the the Mm -hmm. college player that wants to turn pro and the mini tour player who's there or the tour player. I wanted to to have that kind of experience to know what they're going through because the average person who, who stands in the gallery and watches a tour player hit the shot, they have no idea of the emotions that are going on. And those guys look so calm and, and, but they're not, I mean, what they're feeling inside is a roller coaster of emotions. And so I wanted to try to experience that as much as I could 
because I knew it would make me a better teacher. I knew after a few tournaments that this was not the path that God wanted for me, but I wanted to stay on it as long as I could. And, and, and believe me, I didn't, I didn't, uh, I didn't make enough money to, if I tell people, if I had to live on the earnings I made, I'd be living under a, a bridge or somewhere um, because I wouldn't have had, I, I just, it wasn't the, the path God wanted. And so teaching is something that I really enjoyed and, and having that experience, I think has really helped me in, in a, as a teacher, but also in writing the book and not giving up because there was many, many times when I would be in my office uh, late at night, still typing away after teaching all day. I hadn't gone home. It's 10 o'clock and I'm asking myself, why am I doing this? And I'd say, I just say to myself, just keep at it. You're not giving up now. You've come this far. And um, so I'm real proud of that. Well, it, it, it's, it's certainly very well written for sure. Um, and, you know, th- there's obviously a, a lot of things that you wanted to talk about in this book. And, and uh, what, I, what I'd like to do now, if you wouldn't mind, is just, and again, obviously I don't want you to get into the whole story, but I'm, I'm going to just read out some names. And, and I sure. would like it, if you wouldn't mind, just to, to share why you included them in the book. And, uh, and if okay. you want to share a little bit of to. the story, that, that's fine. Um, Wild Bill kind of caught my interest. Uh, who is Wild Bill? Tell us first off who they are, who that uh, individual that you're referring to and maybe just a little snippet of the story. He is coach Bill Burroughs is my high school basketball coach and he coached uh, Brad Johnson and Brad Darty. Brad Darty was the number one pick in the 1986 draft and Wild Bill, he got that name as the assistant coach for Georgia Tech under Bobby Crimmins and um, I, the three most influential people in my life have been my father, uh, th- influential men, excuse me, because I do want to include my mother in there. But as far sure. as men go, is my father, uh, Phil Rogers, and Coach Bill Burroughs. And um, he pushed me to limits I never thought I could uh, uh, take as a, as a high school basketball player. Uh, and I thank him every day uh, because it, he instilled work ec- ethic in me. And, and so uh, that's Wild Bill. Very interesting. Uh, Seve Ballesteros. I got to spend three days with Seve Ballesteros and, and watch him take lessons. And I watched him on the video system in Grand Cypress, and he hit balls in penny loafer shoes. And he was hitting drivers. One drive would go 300 yards right, and the next drive would go 300 yards left. And I thought to myself, my gosh, how, how could this guy win a, a mini tour event, much less the, you know, the Masters and the British Open? And then I saw his short game, and I saw his putting, and I said, okay, I can see why. He had the most beautiful putting stroke I've ever seen. And this is what I would tell uh, uh, Adam Scott, and I would tell Sergio Garcia. You know, putting is an art form. It's not a science. Mm -hmm. It's an art form. And you watch Seve putt. He wasn't thinking about his stroke. He wasn't thinking about mechanics. He wasn't stiff. He was – there's a flow to it. And every single person who has ever played on the PGA Tour at some point in their life has been able to putt. And so Mm -hmm. what you have to do is you have to draw upon back when you were a 14-year-old or a 15-year-old or a 16-year-old. You looked at the hole, you saw the break, you saw the creativity of the putt, and then there was a flow to it. And when I look at Adam Scott and Sergio swing the club, I see that. When they putt, I don't see that. And that's so frustrating as a teacher. Um, you know, I've, I've never worked with them or anything, but if I ever did work with them, that'd be the first thing I'd say, say to them is get away from the, you know, you don't need the, the claw grips and you don't need the long putters and you don't need any of that stuff. 
learn to let the weight of the putter swing like Seve did, and, and you'll be a great putter. And I would pull out his video and watch him putt because it was beautiful to watch. Yeah, and he was obviously uh, also well-known for his bunker play. He was a phenomenal bunker player, um, just had a, a great style and, and finesse in around the greens, particularly uh, the greenside bunkers. And uh, I, it's a shame, unfortunately, he's no longer with us because he was somebody I really used to enjoy. You know, obviously, I we're – uh, a few years apart, I'm just a little bit older than you, but uh, we grew up pretty much the same area. I'm going to be 53 in a little over a week. And uh, I grew up, of course, watching uh, great players like Jack Nicholas and, and uh, Seve, of course, and uh, Lee, Lee Trevinos and, and uh, many other uh, of that era. And uh, they were just masters at, at what they did. They were incredible shot makers. You know, what's always kind of funny um, you know, as I've talked about on the show before, you know, you see a lot of these great young guns coming up and they've just got these picture perfect swings. Um, and you compare them to many of the other golfers, um, you know, from 20, 30 years ago, who by today's standards would not, um, just as you pointed out with Seve, you know, hitting it left and right and so forth. Um, you'd be surprised how they could uh, even make it on the mini tour, let alone on, on the grand stage on a PGA uh, tour event or like in a masters. Um, but were masters of their own game and they didn't have all of the, the um, you know, swing coaches and the golf gurus and the mental gurus that you see out in the PGA and the LPGA tours now. And it just kind of makes you wonder why is there such a difference? And I, I just think it, it really is a testament to the character of these individuals and maybe something that uh, some of the younger players could, could take note of. Uh, I want to ask you about another player, Paul Azinger. You write about him in the book. Um, What's your experience with Paul, and, and why is he in the book? Well, I was teaching a golf school with Phil Rogers, and I, I taught a lot with Phil Rogers at, when I was at Grand Cypress. And uh, Paul Azinger was in town. Phil was giving him lessons um, outside of the school that I was doing. And, and um, you know, Paul just comes driving up to, to, to the class. And here, keep in mind, I'm with about six or eight uh, guys from New York City who are probably all mid to high handicap players. And Paul gets out of the cart and says, Phil, I want to thank you for, uh, you know, your help uh, the last couple of days. I'm, I'm heading out of town. And, and Phil says, well, before you leave, you know, I want to see you hit some shots. And we were, we were on one of the practice holes. We weren't even on the driving range. And it got real quiet because all the, the students were just, they didn't, they didn't know, uh, you know, what, what to do. And, and, and Paul said, he was very polite, and he said, you know, well, I don't want to take your students' time away. And one of the students just said, he said, are you kidding? We all suck. And he, and I just started laughing and the whole group started laughing because we want to watch you hit the ball. And so he started hitting the ball. And, you know, the thing about Azinger is, is he has a strong grip and, and, and he's mm-hmm. kind of known for that. And, but his ball flight, I, he, he just had a beautiful ball flight, every shot he hit. And what I loved about the way Phil taught him was he taught him how to release the club with a strong grip, and he kept saying knuckles to the sky. So that's the way a David Duvall, um, you know, right. guys like a Ted Tree, but guys who have strong grips, they want to they want to cut the ball. They do not want the ball drawing with a strong grip, and so they learn to cut the ball by it's not holding on by releasing with their knuckles going to the sky. And and I'll always remember that because I what I loved about working with Phil Rogers was he would take what great players do and he would make them better. He would not try to change things. He would not try to change the mannerisms that got him great. He would find little things in there to, to fix and, and, and make them even better. And that's, the, that's just the, 
mark of a genius, really. And I learned so much. I've just, I, I could, I could write a whole book on just him um, and all the things that I learned uh, in my 20 years at Grand Cypress from Phil Rogers. Yeah, it's you know, and again, you know, drawing from a lot of your experiences helped you, and, and obviously, um, and we're going to talk more about this uh, here in just a minute. But um, you know, your spiritual side. One of the interesting things I, I found uh, about uh, your book so far, and as I said, I'm not quite done yet. But um, one of the interesting found is is the fact that you're very open about your spirit spirituality. Um, you know, here you have an opportunity as, as a golf professional and somebody that's been in the golf industry for many years, just to come up with another golf book, you chose to, to a different approach. And, and you explained earlier, uh, your reasonings behind that, but maybe if you can just share a little bit more, um, why you felt it was important to you, um, to come up with a book as opposed to just another uh, lesson book or another book, uh, you know, how to play great golf or so forth. Why did yeah. you feel it was important to, to come up with the book that you did? It was important because this is what God was asking me to do. Originally when I wanted to start the book, it was going to be golf is my life. And I knew that 20 years ago. Um, and when, when I knew that, that, that God wanted, you know, these stories were coming in my head and I said, I want to, you know, I kept saying, someday I'm going to give back to the game of golf. Golf has been so good to me, and I want to show how golf and life are parallel, how, they, how, how the, when you go play golf, you treat people with respect. You, you, you know, in basketball, you're trying to steal the, steal the ball or block a shot, or you're tackling in football. You're, 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 in golf, you're helping your opponent. I wanted to really do a book along those lines. I really threw out the idea of doing an instructional book because, quite frankly, instructional books uh, on the golf swing, in my opinion, um, you, you can't learn the game of golf by just reading a book. Now, some people have, but it is something that you must do. It is something that you must tangibly do. And I think it's great if you're talking about more of the mental side, maybe, or you're talking about course management, things along those lines. That's, that's great. And I knew that if I wrote a golf instructional book, I would be rewriting the, th the things that have already been written. It, it, no, there would be nothing original about it. When I right. rededicated my life to Jesus and when I started going back to church and I'd been away from the church a long time and I'd gone down some paths by myself sure. with my, at the time where I just was hell bent on, I'm going to make things happen. And, <laughs> And I'm going to conquer the world. I'm going to do all these things. And I started, you know, pride and it was me, me, me. When I got off of that and I got back in and when God started stripping me down and when I lost my marriage and when I lost my house and when I lost my condo and then I lost my job, when I, when he stripped me down and got me down to where it was just me and him, I had no choice but to look up to God. And I knew during this process um, that I had to write glorifying God through the game. And I wanted the glory for the book to go to God and God will do with this book what he wants. And that's what Pete has told me since day one. If God wants three people to have this book and it's going to change their lives and that's what will happen. Or if he wants 30 million people to. And so I have, I've stuck with that and, and I've enjoyed um, all the people I've met. And it's been a, it's been a really uh, more of a therapeutic for me. It's been very therapeutic to be able to express myself uh, in what I've been going through in my life. And then what I really think is unique about the book is I've got 
stories about Seve Ballesteros, Tiger Woods, Arnold Palmer, Brad Johnson, Brad Darty, Roy Williams, Bobby Crimmins. I mean, the, I've got a list of just really star-studded people that add so much sizzle. So the athlete, you know, the football player, the basketball player is going to mm-hmm. read this book and they're going to get something out of it. The golfer is going to get something out of it. And a Christian who's never played the game is going to get something out of it. And that's really what I wanted. And when Christian Faith Publishing, they looked at my that my stuff and they said you know what you got a home run here because you've got platforms you you're most people come to us with just a christian book or some people come to us you know maybe with two elements she goes you have so many elements and platforms where you can speak in front of people and you're really going to impact a lot of lives with it and that's when i started getting excited about it and um you know so it's been it's been a great experience well the interesting thing too which i think a lot of people don't really understand, and I think what makes golf um, a very unique uh, game or sport, however you want to uh, paraphrase, is it it very closely mimics life. Uh, many of the challenges that we we face out, and I'm sure you've heard this before many times and, and experienced it yourself. But many of the challenges that we face out in the golf course really parallel many of the challenges that we face in in our everyday life. You know, we get. Uh, deal with adversities and challenges and difficult situations and have to um, rely on the our inner self, if you will, to, to get us out of those situations. And life is the same thing. The, the, the difference is, I think, that what people don't understand, and I think what you've learned through your own journey in life, is that there is somebody other than yourself that you can rely on. And this is something that you've tried to really articulate in this book, is that there is... Um, something else out there other than yourself. And, and as you pointed out earlier, you know, you've had your struggles and challenges early on in your life that have brought you to this point, uh, as many of us have. I think this is what really the book says is it's not just about me. It's about something That's greater right. than myself. Correct? That's right. That's exactly right. It, it is written to glorify God. And, and um, you know, I, I remember, I'll never forget when David Robinson won the NBA uh, with San Antonio, I think it was their first time they had won. I, I don't, I can't remember if he won one or two, but it, I remember him. They were interviewing him, and the, and the announcer put the microphone right up in his face, and he said, he said, well, you know what I'm going to say. He goes, I give all the glory to Jesus Christ. And I remember, honestly, I honestly, I'm going to be completely honest with you because this was a time in my life I wasn't going to church. I kind of cringed a little bit. I said, I, sure. you know, I, 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 I don't know if he really should have said that. I totally now get it. I totally get it now because when you are living in a life and, and it's just, you know, you're looking at your accomplishments and uh, in the Bible, they talk about, you know, uh, creating an idol. The Israelites, you know, burn down gold and they build a calf. Um, right. I remember when I first heard that, I thought to myself, I'll never do that. I will never, mm-hmm. you know, create an idol. Well, you know what? I did create an idol with my house. Uh, and people mm-hmm. do it with cars, and they do it with jewelry, and they do it with money. their job, and they do it with their money, and they do it with their yeah. planes, and all these things. Sometimes they do it with drugs. They do it with whatever it is. They create an idol, and they worship that. And I I look back at my life as I was on this spiral going down, and I said, wow, I did do those things that I never said I would do. And I didn't even realize I was doing it. So this book is um, is uh, pretty much – a a lot of the tough lessons that we all learn in life, and I think all of us, if we if we sat down, uh, could write a book because we've all dealt with these same struggles 
that I've dealt with, uh, and some people have dealt with a lot more than I've dealt with. Um, and so it's important um, to be able to uh, look at them and learn from them and then move forward. And that's what I tell kids now. I always tell them, I said, if I had learned this concept when I played competitive golf, I would have been a lot better player. And that is the most important shot. I always ask kids, what's the most important shot of your golf and, or the most important shot in golf? And some people will raise their hands and they'll say, well, it's the drive. And some people will say, oh, it's the putt. And I say, well, those are important. But the most important shot in golf is the next shot. That's yeah. the most important <laughs> shot. It's right. not it's because the, the shot you just hit is history. So yesterday is history. Tomorrow's a mystery. You can't, you can't be thinking about the 14th hole when you're on the 12th hole, and you can't be thinking about the 8th hole. You've got to be thinking about the hole that you're on. So yesterday's history. Tomorrow's a mystery. Today is a gift from God. That's why we call it the present. And so that's what I look at now. I try to live every day now, one day at a time. My mom or dad will ask me, you know, what are you going to do next? I'm, I'm just, here's... I'm just going to get through today. I'm focused on today. I've got some things I'll be, you know, travel and speeches and things like that. But I'm trying to put my focus on each day one at a time. And if people will do that in golf, they'll play better. I don't care what their handicap is. They'll play better golf. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think, too, the other thing that a lot of people don't understand, and, and you, you pointed out uh, eloquently, is their focus is on not – and besides themselves, but it, it's their, not just their own satisfaction, but they, they idolize other things. And when you do that, you take your, your true self and sort of manipulate it into something other than who you are and who you were meant to be. And a lot of times you see this time and time again. I mean, how many times do you just turn on the, the TV every day and there's story after story about somebody you know, that was a rising star in whatever field, doesn't matter what the sports or entertainment. And suddenly now they're, you know, in a drug rehab or they're, uh, yeah. they've lost everything because of another reason. And it's because they're worshiping something other than, um, our creator. And, then you know, a lot right. of people, a, a lot of people don't understand that. And, and as I said, until you've truthfully been humbled yourself, um, you don't get it. Um, I can remember when I was young and, and, you know, for lack of better words, cocky and arrogant and, and that. And, you you know, society has sort of gotten us to a point uh, early on in life where you need to think about certain things. And not to say that some of those things aren't important, but they have to be put in perspective. And I think what you've tried to do, with, and correct me if I'm wrong, with this book is to um, not to say that you shouldn't go out there and enjoy life and, and have fun and make the most of your life, but you need to make sure that it's really what your purpose is in life and not just what you – for instance, I'll give you an example just to, to, to uh, adhere to that. As you talk about really your dream for yourself was you wanted to play professional golf, but that's not necessarily yeah. what the, the true dream was. And you came to realize that at a later point, and, uh, and now you have a, a, an understanding of what your true path was, and that's really what you try to articulate in this book. Exactly. I think that God – um, we, the one thing that I know about every human being is, is if you have a heartbeat and you have a breath, you have a purpose. God has a purpose for every single human being on this earth. And the sooner you can tap into asking him to lead you to that purpose, instead of trying to go out there and create it yourself, the less headaches you're going to have in your life. And that's what I've learned uh, in my 50 years. And hopefully 
I'll have a, a long, full life, and I will allow him to uh, lead me more and more because I still believe me. I mean, I want to go every day. I want to get up and charge through life. And, and I have learned, I mean, in everything I do now is to ask the Holy Spirit to lead my heart, to lead my mind, to lead my soul. And the Holy Spirit is God Almighty living inside of me. And I just tap into that every day. And I just say, lead me through this. You know, what is it today that I need to do that's important? And I ask the Holy Spirit to help me to to figure out what's important in my life and what, what could be put off till tomorrow. Because we could all sit down and write down 25 or 30 things every day that we need to do, but it's hard to do all those in 24 hours. And, and so mm-hmm. um, I, I just – I hope that the reader – I, I, the one thing that I that I I want to emphasize to to all, and I realize that this that your listeners, the majority of your listeners, are, are going to be golfers or or have mm-hmm. association with golf. But there's a the golf the book is not just a golf book. It is a Christian book, and golfers, if you're a Christian and a golfer, it's a home run. I mean, it's an absolute right. home run. And so, um, and I think you would agree with that, having having sure. read most of it, but. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's just something that, um, you know, I, I really have I've tried to put an emphasis on is that it's you don't have to be a golfer. And I'm hoping I'm hoping that that the non-golfer who reads it is going to want to say, you know what, I want to play golf. I want to mm-hmm. play golf. I, I think, you know, something that sounds like a sport that I would like to play because golf is struggling. I mean, there's a lot of it's oh, yeah. tough with especially with the young kids coming up and they just got their cell phones and all these things going on. And they're just being pulled in a million different directions. Um, golf is, is, is you know, I, I want to give back and I want to grow the game of golf as well. Well, well said. And uh, you're exactly right. And, you know, golf can be very humbling in itself. I mean, you look at a player like Tiger Woods, who was at the top of his game until uh, at one point in his life when he uh, went down a path that, that um, obviously God had to uh, humble him in, in many ways. But you know, and look at the struggles and challenges that he's had on his way back up and, and still continues in many ways to, to uh, struggle today. But, um, but I think that even the best player in the world at that particular time uh, can have challenges thrown at him for whatever reason and, and fall from, you know, from grace, if you will. Um, and I'm sure there were many, many a days and many a nights that Tiger probably thought to himself, what just happened with my life? You know, here I was, yeah. uh, you know, winning majors and, and winning tournaments. And now I can't even put, you know, two good rounds together. And many times we've seen over the years, him trying to reinvent himself. Um, but obviously God has a different plan for him. Yeah. I, I've, I've said this and, and I told Pete this, I said, you know, um, Earl Woods didn't create um, Tiger Woods and, and uh, Sean Foley didn't do it, and Butch Harmon mm-hmm. didn't do it, and Hank Haney didn't right. do it. They all helped. God sure. created Tiger Woods. God is the, right. God, I mean, Tiger Woods. When when he was, God said, "I'm going to create," you know, the, the one of the greatest golfers of all times. He did the same thing with Jack Nicklaus. The difference sure. is, Jack Nicklaus didn't change his. When you have a winning formula, there's a reason mm-hmm. why the New England Patriots consistently win. They have a winning right. formula. They don't change that winning formula. Uh, Jack Nicholas had a winning formula. He didn't have to deal with injuries. You know why? 
because mm-hmm. his body, um, the way he swung the club, he used his body. He didn't restrict too much with his lower body like Tiger. Um, he didn't do a lot of crazy, uh, you know, fighting, uh, you know, going and doing a bunch of crazy stuff outside of, of golf to put a lot of stress on his body. And he didn't over-practice. I mean, I heard Jack Nicklaus say this in an interview. He said, I'd go to the driving range and I'd hit golf balls. And if I was hitting my wedges good, I'd go to my mid irons or, or go to my short irons. If I was hitting those well, I'd go to my mid irons. And if I was hitting those well, I'd go to my long irons. And if I was hitting those well, I'd go to my fairway woods and I'd work my way. And then he, he goes, if I was doing that well, he goes, I'd just go to the short game. And if I was, stri- right. he goes, he would always go. And if he was doing something well, he would move to work and he would find what he wasn't doing well. And then he'd work on that. And I think that, um, I think that you can overdo um, with, I'm not saying, you know, Ben Hogan practice and all that stuff, but, and Tiger was set the bar very high with it. Mm-hmm. But I think there comes a point when you can overdo things. And, and, um, and unfortunately, um, you know, I think that I would love to see Tiger get back to to be to the old tiger that we once saw and i believe that if it's going to happen uh it's going to have to happen through god that's my personal opinion there's not a swing teacher in this world that's going to make the difference it's got to be he's got to come he's got to and only he can do that and i pray that he does and i think it'd Mm -hmm. be great for him and obviously it'd be great for the game of golf as well Right. I, I agree. Exactly. I, you know, you can go in, th- in front of all the instruction you want. I mean, Tiger knows how to play the game. It's not an issue of how to play or how to uh, swing the golf club. He understands that he's a, he's, you know, a master at it really. Um, yeah. I'm sure there's a lot of things. In fact, I've even heard some of the, the coaches in that before say that, you know, Tiger could probably teach them just as much about the swing as they're teaching him. In fact, I think that was Hank Haney that said that. Um, yeah. So, you know, it's not an issue of him not understanding the swing or getting into the right position. Uh, there's something else, and, and only God knows what that is, and uh, that's between him and God. And, and I hope, as you said, I, you know, I hope uh, one day that he um, is, is able to come to terms with that, and, and if, if it's in God's will, then he'll, uh, he'll continue on, uh, and if not, then God will put him in, a, in another place that he wants him to. Um, John, it's, it's it's thus far it's been a very interesting read and, and hearing the stories now and I and I'm very honored to have you on the show tonight because I think uh, again I try to uh, expand my audience's learning as well. Yeah. I try not to just get on and you know I don't know if you listened to the earlier segment or not, but uh, in in Coach's Corner we have uh, some great discussions on here and I don't want it just to be about how to fix the slice or how to um, you know uh, correct the hook or what have you. Um, I, I try to expand their minds a little bit more as well uh, about golf and, and, and the teachers' minds as well. But uh, I want to thank you for coming on the show, and I want to give you an opportunity to share uh, with the audience where they can get a copy of this book. And, uh, okay. and then I want you to sh- share what's, uh, what's next for, for John Decker. Well, thank you, Ted, for having me on the show. It's been a it's been a pleasure. You can uh, I would there's a different ways. It's online. It's on Barnes and Noble and Amazon. But I would tell the to the listeners to go to my website. It's JohnDeckerGolf.com, and it's I spell it J-O-N, so it's JohnDeckerGolf.com, uh, and you can order it on through Barnes and Noble or Amazon. Uh, there's links uh, on there as well. But I've got golf videos on there as well. Uh, I'm going to be uh, going to um, Orlando next. Uh, I'm going to be down during the week of Bay Hill. 
I'm going to be speaking at the gathering of the men at the First Presbyterian Church the next day, which is the 15th of this month. I'll be doing a book signing at Barnes & Noble, and then I'm going to um, um, be tr just doing more book signings and, and traveling uh, during that time. So, uh, you know, I've got a lot going on. Um, as far as my travel goes, I've been um, I've been in Atlanta, I've been all through Ohio, North Carolina, Florida, uh, so in Texas. So I've been doing a lot of traveling, and uh, I've got a schedule up on the website as well. If people uh, and if someone um, like I've already started booking out in the summer um, mm -hmm. in Richmond, Virginia, and and um, some other venues. If anyone is interested in having me come speak, uh, feel free to contact me. Uh, and you, my uh, information's on, you know, through the website. You can contact through, me through the website. And uh, yes, and that, and um, that'd be, you know, I would be welcome. I would uh, love to come uh, and speak and and uh, you know do book signings or whatever they may have. And I've been doing churches and schools, and so um, it's been a great experience. Well, again, John, I want to thank you for coming on and being my my very special guest tonight. I, as I said, I've I've been enjoying the book uh, thus far, and I'm going to. Uh, try and get it completed this weekend. Um, obviously, doing this this line of work, I get uh, a lot of different uh, things sent to me in books, so it's not always easy to. But this one really, uh, um, for lack of a better word, spoke to me just because of of really what's in this book. And uh, I, I particularly wanted to get you on the show and share that with my audience. And uh, so, for those of you that that uh, would like to get a copy uh, for yourself, you can go to. Uh, JohnDeckerGolf.com and and purchase it through the site. And you can also find out about John's uh, upcoming schedule if you, uh, he's going to be in your area and you want to uh, uh, go to one of the book signings or maybe one of the uh, events that he's going to be speaking at. I would strongly uh, suggest that you do so. Um, John, please keep me updated on on what's happening, and uh, I hope that when book number two comes out, that you'll uh, you'll think of me and come back and, and share again with uh, my audience. <laughs> okay. Well, th thank you. Thank you very much, Ted. It's been a, a pleasure. Thank you very much. Uh, I appreciate it. Uh, my very special guest, John Decker, and the book is Golf is My Life, Glorifying God Through the Game. Good luck, my friend. God bless, and thank you again for sharing with my audience. Thank you. All right. Good night. All right, that was my very special guest, uh, John Decker, the author of Golf Is My Life, Glorifying God Through the Game. Uh, a very good book. As I said, I haven't finished it all yet, but uh, I plan on, on uh, getting through the rest of it this weekend. Um, some great stories in there. He shared a little, uh, few snippets uh, from the book uh, earlier on. And uh, again, you can go to johndeckergolf.com. You can order it through his website or Barnes & Noble or Amazon.com as well. Uh, the book is available there, and uh, very, very interesting read, and gives a, a, a really a lot to think about. Uh, I also want to, uh, again, thank my very special coaches corner panel, uh, Allison Kurt, Pete Buchanan, and Monty Scheinblum, uh, for doing a great job on the first coaches corner panel uh, discussion here in 2017. Uh, we'll have another great uh, panel discussion uh, next week on the show. Uh, there will not be a show on the following Thursday. Next Thursday, which uh, I believe is uh, the 9th, if I'm not mistaken, uh, we'll be having a show. But uh, the following uh, Thursday, I believe, or maybe it's the one after that, I'll have to double check. But uh, one of the Thursday, the third Thursday, I think, of the month, uh, we won't be having a show. But, uh, but next week, uh, my good friend, a uh, sports um, a, uh, instructor, 
physical instructor, uh, Brett Cohn, who's been on the show before, is going to be joining in on the Coach's Corner panel next week. And uh, every uh, other month uh, throughout the rest of the year, he'll be coming on and talking about the fitness side of golf and how to better prepare. We've got some great. So he's going to be joining in as a, a sort of a special guest on the Coach's Corner panel. And I've got some other uh, great uh, folks lined up as well. Uh, doing something a little bit different this year with Coach's Corner, as I mentioned to, to John on the show here just a few moments ago. Uh, I'm trying to get away from just the traditional, uh, you know, coach and instruction on the show. We're trying to really uh, open and, and expand the discussion. I think the, the coaches have enjoyed it in the past. So, um, we're going to try and, and change things up a little bit differently this year. So I'm going to have some special guests, um, not every show, but uh, on a few of the coaches' corner panel, uh, maybe a couple of them each month. And Brett Cohen, as I said, stepped up on the fitness side of things. And I've got a few others uh, in the wings as well. They're going to be joining in uh, in the panel discussion with a specific topic in mind. And I'm going to let them actually do uh, a little bit of the talking and, and sort of opening the, the dialogue and discussion on those shows. So uh, make sure you tune in. Uh, for those uh, as well. But uh, again, I want to take this opportunity to thank my very special guests this evening, John Decker, uh, the Coach's Corner Panel, Monty Scheinblum, Pete Buchanan, and Allison Kurt for uh, always doing a great job and giving of your time. And uh, But I want to thank, uh, particularly I want to thank the audience um, for faithfully tuning in, uh, the global audience for faithfully tuning in to Golf Talk Live each and every week. And as I've said so many, many times over the last several years, I have a great amount of pleasure and enjoyment of having a number of highly t- talented coaches, uh, teach professionals, authors uh, like John Decker, and, uh, and golf entrepreneurs that stop by. And it's really through their participation and guest appearances that have helped make Golf Talk Live a first-class show. Uh, a special thanks to some of the sponsors and supporters of the program, Mr. Jonathan Laird, my good friend at South Coast Golf Guide. Go to southcoastgolfguide.com can uh, find out more about this great publication that's uh, here throughout the southeastern part of the United States from Texas right over through here uh, in Florida. Uh, If you're looking to play some of the great courses here in the southeast, uh, you can get a copy of South Coast Golf Guide uh, uh, anywhere here in the southeast or if you're not in the southeast and you'd like to have a copy of the guide before you come down here on vacation, uh, you can reach out to uh, Jonathan at southcoastgolfguide.com and uh, he'll make arrangements to have a copy sent up to you. But otherwise, when you're coming down here uh, in the southeast, if you're going to be at uh, most of the uh, main courses uh, in the areas uh, throughout the various states, uh, or you can go to Edwin Watts and some of the other golf shops that that, uh, might be carrying them as well. Uh, But go to uh, southcoastgolfguide.com, and that'll tell you uh, where you need to go to get your hot little hands on a copy. So again, southcoastgolfguide.com. Thank you, Mr. Jonathan Laird, uh, for all your continued support of the show. Also, Meredith Kirk from Meredith Kirk Golf, thank you for all of your support. Uh, Nikki and Tiffany Litherland, uh, thank you for your support. Mr. Bernie Pinder from Ontic Golf uh, as well, great custom uh, uh, line of customized uh, putters. Uh, thank you, for uh, Bernie, for all of your continued support. Sean Kelly, uh, owner of LinkedGolfers.com, uh, a great uh, social network platform for those uh, like-minded individuals, both in the golf industry and those that just enjoy playing the game, go to linkedgolfers.com. And of course, my very good friend over in Ireland, uh, Doyle Golf Solutions, Mr. Peter Doyle, great teacher professional, as well as a club fitter as well. Thank you, Peter, for all of your continued support. Uh, again, thank you for tuning in this week to Golf Talk Live. I thoroughly enjoyed uh, the first show of March and the first Coach's Corner panel. And of course, my special guest, John Decker. Um, on that note, I will see you next week right here on Golf Talk Live. God bless everybody and have a great weekend. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.